Welcome to another episode of the Bayer Speak Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Robin. And we have uh, Dr. Mari Setha. Welcome to the podcast, Mari. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for your patience. I know we've been trying this, trying to plan this for quite a while. It's all good. You know, I, I got a message the other day from someone that I reached out to like six months ago and they're like, I want to be on. So, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's a back and forth game and I, I enjoy playing it. I'm just, I'm glad you finally made it. And I'm, and I'm glad that I'm actually, I get an interview and then two weeks later I get to meet you. That's never happened. So I'm going to see you at the Baba conference. Yeah. I'm excited about that. That's super exciting. Uh, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge that I'm producing this podcast for the territories of the Talaman, Klehus, Tomoko, and Comox uh, First Nations. Um, and I had been sharing for the last, I don't know, 27 acknowledgements that they were one community before we came in and separated them into reserves. And I realized when I was on the, on the last interview that I did, and I was thinking, I don't know if that's exactly true. So I was Googling it today um, and doing a little bit of research. Um, uh, they do uh, call each other sister nations. So they're, they're, there's a relationship there. And they do all speak the same language, so they all have they all have one language that they speak, and that I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but um, it's uh, I'm on a couple language websites, and and they all share that. Um, and they're definitely they definitely are, you know, in proximity to them all. In fact, this island that I live on called Texada, uh, which is actually called Sayayin in in the language, um, has little sections of all those nations. As, as sort of claims all around it. And so it could be their one community. I don't know that for a fact, but definitely sharing one language. So um, this is for, so for the folks that uh, maybe have noticed that and cared, um, this is my possible correction. Uh, but definitely grateful to be here on 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 uh, on these on these lands and um, and uh, grateful to uh, that that's going to be kind of part of the conversation today. Um, so, uh, before we kind of get into that, Marty, maybe we could just t- tell us a little bit about, uh, kind of, kind of yourself, kind of how you got into this, this field we call behavior analysis and, uh, and kind of to the, to the work you're doing now. Yeah. So I came about it, uh, probably not in the traditional sense. I think now there's more people that are coming in from the public education side, but, um, I started teaching back in 2003 uh, in a small school south of Houston, um, and I actually had applied for a different position. I think I had applied for like a second grade um, general education position, and um, I was fresh out of college, so uh, you know, all bright and bubbly and going to save the world kind of thing. Like, woo! <laughs> now that I think back on that. And uh, I was interviewing with the principal. She looked at me and she said, I think you're going to be really good for this other position that I have. And it's called the school-wide success program. Well, um, you know, again, it's my first job. I was really excited. And I was like, I'm not asking questions. Sure. I need a job. Um, And so accepted the position, started and day one, literally walked into this classroom that had like two doors. There was little windows on the doors and there was bars right on the little windows. And when I walked in and the door shut, it locked. 
And that was like my first introduction to what this school-wide wow. success program was. And it was basically, it was a an intermediate campus. So it was um, like grades fourth, fifth, and sixth. Um, so it was in between elementary and middle school. Yeah. And um, it was supposedly the toughest students um, with significant disabilities um, on the kind of behavioral emotional side. And, um, yeah, I feel like I kind of had gotten trapped in that and, uh, nobody told me that <laughs> that's what the quite school quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I loved it. They were amazing. They were the best four kids I had ever like to start out my teaching career with. And mm-hmm. I actually learned about behavior analysis because, uh, and I was trying to go back to see when the BACB formed and when they started issuing out like the certification, right? Like when they started, um, doing the testing, um, cause this was an old school behavior analyst that, uh, worked for the district. And I, I don't even know if they were called BCBAs at that point. So I had, uh, Mike Mueller on talking about the IBA and he was comparing to the BACB and he said the BACB started, in 1998 okay. and, and but it was about nine or ten years later before they were actually accredited but yeah okay so then this was before so this was someone that you know they considered themselves a behavior analyst um but the way that she taught me again she was an indigenous lady her name was maria um mm. and i don't know where she's at anymore which is really heartbreaking for me i can't reach out to her um mm. but she taught me what I know and, you know, as far as what behavior analysis was really from an indigenous perspective, really from a Mm. relational and community perspective of, you know, we as humans, we influence the environment around us as much as it influences us, right? Like if we talk about, you know, in nature, the things that we do, and then what nature does back to us, you know, it's a very reciprocal kind of symbiotic relationship. And you have to Mm. understand, your role in these environments and and how you play a part and then how it it shapes you to be who you are. Um, so I learned it from a very kind of organic, you know, it wasn't the white, you know, Cooper textbook. Yeah. It was very like rigid structured. It was more of a like watch and learn and listen and see what these children are telling you by the way they navigate their world. Hmm. And so that was my introduction to behavior analysis and um, really the whole concepts of like reinforcement and punishment. All of these things were taught to me in this very, again, kind of narrative medicine, indigenous way uh, of being. And that, you know, reinforcement mm-hmm. is really about a relationship. Right. Um, and and not this transactional method that I would kind of learn about later. Right. Uh, so I, I taught for. Um, gosh, 2003 ended up moving to South Texas, um, left public ed for a little bit. It's, it's no surprise. Um, I lost my first husband. He was a victim of suicide. Mm. Um, so went back to South Texas where I had family, um, ended up, uh, kind of stepping away from public ed for just a little bit and teaching at a Montessori school um and they they had children with disabilities and so they were like we really need a music teacher um i have a minor in music and so that was another like a really great opportunity for growth just 
even looking at the Montessori method, Maria Montessori's um, way of um, teaching and exploration and it being discovery based, right. And learning mm-hmm. about your environment through discovery. Um, so that really shaped, you know, a lot of the way that um, I taught and it also shaped the way that I parented uh, because I was a parent, a, a young parent um, to young children. When I moved back um, mm-hmm. as a widow, I had a two and a three-year-old. And so, um, you know, that, and then, um, you know, ended up staying there for a couple of years, um, met my current husband and, um, we moved up to North Texas where I jumped back into public ed, um, taught from 2011 to, I want to say 2017, Mm. um, and really struggled in the public ed uh, world because of the compliance piece of it. The um, we don't care what you're teaching as long as that classroom is quiet at the end of the hallway. Um, you know, it was a rough, you know, time for advocating for kids, but I never stopped. You know, uh, I was used to getting in trouble for it. Uh, and then, um, you know, went back to school uh, to get my um, ABA master's certificate, the graduate certificate from mm. Penn State. Um, was really uh, fortunate to have professors like Dr. Dr. Cabina um, and a few others that mm. were kind of the older um, giants uh, in the field. Um, became a BCBA and then left and went into a clinic setting. I left public ed and I was like, I'm going to try a clinic for a little bit. And I lasted about three months. Wow. Um, I was appalled and shocked at what I observed. And I was like, this is not for me. Hmm. Um, and so I went back into public ed and um, ended up being kind of like an inclusion coordinator, behavior specialist, doing all of like the FBAs, teaching teachers. Um, and, you know, for a little bit, you know, it's like, it's okay. Um, you kind of ignore all the stuff. You try to ignore it. And then in 2017, I was like, I'm done. But I had an opportunity to move into a role um, here in Texas where you can work at a region service center. And these service centers basically are where teachers go to get their continuing education. So mm. I got to now teach teachers what I was doing in the classroom. And uh, for the first three years, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And mm. then the political piece started coming in and I started getting questioned like you're doing a four day training. Like, you know, th- this was they were used to like um, you giving a one hour to four hour professional development. Right. And it and it, re- and it really being like a motivational talk. I don't know if you've ever been to like some professional developments or if teachers can probably relate to this where you walk in and you're like, wow, that was like so inspiring, but I still don't know what the hell to do (laughs) day to day. Um, So I was really about like digging into the, like, what does your instructional teaching protocol look like? Like, how Mm. are you supporting your students? Like, what does that relational kind of reinforcement look like? You know, are you building a safe space in your classroom where kids um, feel safe to learn and feel safe to, you know, let go of some, you know, behaviors that aren't working for them. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it wasn't long before it was kind of like, uh, no, you're really kind of stepping into areas that, you know, just stick to these kind of three basic topics. Mm. So, and 
So about the fifth year, I was like, oh, I got to find something else. And so I actually went and started working for um, a big box uh, ABA clinic that, or not ABA clinic, an in-home ABA company that had come into this, this region where I was at, because there's really not a lot. Hmm. And um, I loved it because it was the first time they were like, yeah, like if you want to write your behavior plans this way, absolutely. Like we'll try to help make sure insurance is okay with the wording and the, you know, and by this time the, the transition was starting to happen, right? It was like 20, 2020. Mm. Um, and so like the language is starting to shift. And um, I really started kind of posting again on my social media, like the things that I was, I've been getting in trouble for in public ed for so many years. And I went from thinking like, I'm just going to be quiet about it to like, no, I'm going to start talking about this stuff. Like, what are they going to do now? Fire me. I don't work there anymore. Um, And so um, really got into that. And then, you know, of course in home um, where I live is not really, um, if you did a needs assessment, what the families here needed, they needed a center. They needed a place for their children to go. Um, because it was usually a single working parent or, you know, both parents had to work. And, you know, within home, there has to be that caregiver that's present. And so um, the company was so kind and generous. They were like, you know, yeah, there's there's plenty for everybody. Like, go do what you need to do. And uh, 2021, you know, Lighthouse was born and mm. we've just been growing ever since. And So that was my introduction into behavior analysis. I had a very unique, um, you know, introduction to it. And I'm so glad that I had that, but it's really made it um, challenging for me to see that that, this is not the way that it is uh, for many people in many places. Wow. That is a different story. So we're going to get into this because you're indigenous yourself. Do you think that being indigenous, you know, helped you see the perspective that Maria gave you clearer? Or like, do you think if you weren't indigenous and Maria and Ta'i this, that you would have sort of picked up on these connections to the land and the connections to, you know, the the way of being type things, you know what I'm talking about? Like. Yeah, I, I, oh, absolutely. I think if I had, I mean, I can't like step in someone else's shoes that's sure. indigenous, but I can definitely see even just from people's reactions to her around me, right? I did have um, other white professionals that when she would start talking to me, they'd kind of just like roll their eyes and like, mm. you know, because it, you know, some people here in Texas would be like, oh, that's hooey, you know, all right. that. Exactly. All that, you know, uh, hippy dippy. And I'm like, you know, Okay, you know, I was young, I wasn't going to say anything back, mm-hmm. but everything that she said, like struck a chord. And I and I'm sure part of it too was being an autistic individual and indigenous, mm. the way that she spoke and taught me, it it resonated with both intersections of who I was. Mm-hmm. Right? And so um, you know, because I would think back to just my own childhood and like yeah, like, you know, she'd say something and I'm like, yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very easy for me to um, understand it and 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 from the, the lived experience perspective, but also as an indigenous person, not just autistic, but, you know, that it reminded me of my grandmother and things that she would teach me and things that she would say to me growing up. Mm. And so it felt very natural. Mm. Um, and again, you know, I wasn't I wasn't 
in academia. I wasn't writing research. You know, I wasn't conducting research. Everything was anecdotal, but it was it was happening uh, as far as like me being a certain way with the students, right? Like, like applying these principles in this way and the results were, I mean, they spoke for themselves. I had one student that had been in there his entire career. And by the end of my first year with him, he not only got out of that program, but he moved into gifted and talented because he was what we now consider or what we now call a twice exceptional individual. Um, but his, because his emotional and um, neurodivergent needs were not being met, he couldn't tap into that piece of, of his intelligence, you know, and he's a brilliant kid. Um, you know, and I remember the former teacher that worked in that unit um, would come and kind of like peek in my classroom and would always make comments about that student of like, yeah, last semester I had to restrain him 19 times and had this like sense of pride about it. And I was just like, I don't think I want to put my hands on him ever. I don't really have a need to or a desire to like, mm -hmm. because as an indigenous person control doesn't exist. We don't control nature and she does not control us. And the moment that we think we have established control, we've actually lost anything that resembles it. If that makes sense. It, oh. That's why it's such a symbiotic relationship. You have to keep doing what you need to do in order for nature and the environment to do what it needs to do. And the moment that I try to stop worrying about myself and what I need to be doing and trying to control, I've lost it. And I think that was very evident in just the relationships that were developed with those students. You know, I, when they graduated, I mean, oh my gosh, this was 2003 and they hmm. were nine, 10 and 11. So they're in their thirties. Yeah. Right. Is that right? 20, yeah. 29, 30. That just blows my mind. Um, but all of them sent me high school graduation invitations, you nice. know, so that was just one of the big things for me. Like this is in my heart. I don't need a white paper. I don't need a single case design to tell me this is the way I need to be in this, in this field and in this work. Are you a solopreneur running your business alone and need help getting more exposure to your target audience while growing your brand? At Beal Marketing Group, we specialize in delivering comprehensive marketing solutions tailored to your unique needs. Our team of seasoned experts excels in crafting creative strategies that captivate your target audience, build brand authority, generate high quality leads, and streamline your business processes. Whether you're seeking a brand makeover, effective lead generation, or a plug-and-play solution that takes care of everything for you, we have you covered. Services can include strategy sessions, video editing, social media management, brand board development, and even a virtual assistant. When you choose Beal Marketing Group, you're partnering with a team of passionate professionals who treat your business as our own. We go above and beyond to understand your goals, target audience, and unique challenges to craft tailor-made strategies that produce remarkable results. Schedule your free discovery call today at bmg 
freeconsult.com. That's B-M-G-F-R-E-E consult.com. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is lighthouse. Just trying to get some timelines here. We're not really going to be focusing so much on this. Um, that is you being autistic. Um, I mean, we're going to be talking about you, so I'm sure that'll come in. Um, uh, were you diagnosed as a child or adult or? As an adult yeah. in my collegiate years. Yeah. In, in my later, later mid to late adult um, college um, had, um, and I want to say graduate school, not undergrad. Yeah. Just so, so things in my life was like leading right. up to this huge breaking point. Um, mm. I already had my children when I received mm. my diagnosis. Um, so it was later, but I was in graduate school. Right. So. so the reason I ask is, so your experience with Maria and then your first visit to an ABA clinic, was that before your diagnosis? So yes, both of those were prior to my diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. And so and so what was it about that first visit to the ABA clinic that just was like, this is wrong that you were seeing? Um, so I was I was already learning about the way that it can be, you know, the therapies can be applied, right? Sure. Even things like um discrete trial. Yeah. I had a very different um, experience and kind of envision it in my head from my teaching experience of what discrete trial looked like. Right. And this is funny because this is something my friend Brian and I have talked about, you know, video games are discrete trial, if you think about it. Right. So it doesn't mean that discrete trial doesn't mean it has to be this very rigid, boring, repetitive, you know what I mean, um, type of activity. Mm -hmm to this clinic. And I remember very specifically a 16 year old girl whose program I don't think had ever changed from the moment she had started as like, a mm. and it was the same discrete trials of, you know, the counting bear thing. Yes. And my heart broke for her, you know, and, and I would watch these behaviors just explode mm. and, you know, they've got the table against the corner and her chair in the corner and they're forcing her to stay there. And she's got her hands in the tech's hair and is pulling and mm. just like this. And I'm watching this thinking she's clearly telling you she doesn't want to count any more bears. And it's what she's been doing the last 13 years of her life. Right. Her life. Like, I don't see any change in this treatment plan. Like, this is something we're giving three and four and five-year-olds right now, but she's still doing it. And the rationale was like, well, because she can't speak. So we have to start here. And I'm like, she is clearly telling you. <laughs> it may not be in words, but she is definitely speaking to you in other ways that this is BS and she's tired of it. Absolutely. And so they were like, well, fine, you work with her. Like, see what you can do. And so we were, honestly, I spent so much time just trying to get to know her. I just wanted to know what she enjoyed doing, you know, and, and to see if had she forgotten what she enjoyed doing because it had been just like 
withheld and, and punished out of her that it was like, I don't even know what, you know, brings me joy anymore. Um, but I remember specifically one time, um, she was, it was during snack time and she looked at me and she like for the first time ever mandated, she said, peanut butter, apple. Mm. And the tech next to me was like, she's got to pick one. And I said, no. And I looked at the client and I said, you want some apple with peanut butter on it, don't you? And she just looked at me like with her, <laughs> like that and like nodded. And I was like, heck yeah, let's do it. And so I gave it to her and I was so ecstatic. And I went to go tell the BCBAs and they were like, that's not on her program. Wow. And I was like, okay. And after that, it was just kind of like, this is not, this is not it. Yeah. This is not. And, and I realized as I talked with more and more people that were in those kinds of settings, that this was not out of the norm. So it took me a long time to decide to jump back into it. Mm. Uh, when I did, I realized that if I don't speak up in a way that the that the field, not maybe everybody, but at least a majority of the field is willing to just pause and listen. Uh, I have to say something. I have to try. Um, and then, you know, 2020, I kind of started, you know, getting into social media more and, you know, discovering kind of the anti-ABA community, mm. um, you know, trying to figure out as an autistic person, how do I navigate that community? How do I navigate my professional community? Cause I really don't fit into either one. Mm. Um, and how am I going to communicate in a way that both sides are willing to listen at least a little bit, at least allow me to plant tiny seeds. Um, and thankfully there've been so many other people alongside doing the same thing that we mm. are today. Right on. And then, and I'm not going to get more into kind of what you do there, probably because you get closer to the end, but you, you were in that big box sort of ABA company that was good. You had some good experiences there. How'd you go from there to Lighthouse? Yeah, I mean, so the people that I worked directly with in this big box were phenomenal. Mm. I will always, uh, in fact, um, I still talk with the BCBA that's here for that company. Nice. Um, you know, we, I will send um, referrals to them if, if, you know, they're looking for in-home. Like, mm. um, but the structure of the business was still something I could not reconcile. The, um, the way that RBTs are treated, right? So it wasn't just the clinic side that I really mm. wanted to develop a new model and try out a new model. It was also on the business structure side. Right. Mm. And, and seeing like, I couldn't even, I couldn't even get indirect hours as a BCBA to keep writing, you know, um, treatment plan goals or, you know, reviewing data. Like it was really on my own time uh. and, you know, not getting paid for that. And, and that was rough. And I mm. thought, 
you know, I started looking into like, okay, well, why is this happening? Why, why is there no flexibility on that? Why is this not being something offered? Um, and I realized, I realize now why, and, you know, we can either talk about that now or later, but coming into Lighthouse and becoming an owner of a, a small center, I got to see that backside, right? That as a, as a BCBA working for someone else, you don't always get to see that. You're not privy mm. to And I realized like, huh, it is possible to give my staff almost 30 hours of indirect time per week. And we're still going to generate enough revenue to keep us open. Mm. So, you know, there was things like that, that I was learning. Um, And so I just needed the opportunity to try it. Um, And I also was advised by a friend that was like, you know, you just have an entrepreneur mind. I don't think you're ever going to be happy working for someone else because when there's a problem, you want to solve it. And in those situations, you may not be able to solve it or not allowed to solve it. Um, And so I thought, well, let me just try and see what happens. So is it just, and, and I'm, you know, I'm not looking to sort of cut into that company you're working for, but is, is, but do you think maybe it's that some of these bigger companies don't offer that because it's about the money and so they want they to, so they can bring more dollars in and be able to run bigger, bigger companies or whatever. I mean, I don't know nothing about business, but it just seems odd that you were able to find, you know, that many hours and, and, and still stay afloat. Yeah, I think the the issue with big box companies is you have a lot of periphery people working, mm. right? Um, like, like, I don't, maybe a board of directors or managers or people that really mm. aren't contributing to direct our pay. Does that make right. sense? Like they're so. not not in the fee, they're not on the front line. They're not, a, they're not doing any direct work with the, the clients that you yeah. can, but they're higher up, right? I see. So that money has to be divvied out now amongst more individuals that really don't have much to do with the actual clinic day to day, right? Yeah. It's like the more people you bring on to do stuff that you can't, uh, the more it's going to impact. Uh, And the beauty of it is there's so many third-party type programs that you can eliminate the need for another salary mm. distribute that to your your rbts essentially right right so basically there's lots of indirect ways to have indirect hours but these folks are just giving them all to these admin folks and other folks that are just sort of keeping the ball rolling and and uh you know whether they be the billing coordinator or the whatever person or the you know the accounts payable person or whoever um they're getting those hours and because your company is you Mm -hmm. there's 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 room to spread it around absolutely and it, it and a good company a good business will budget at least 30 percent of their revenue to payroll Um, but a very, but very successful companies will budget up to 45 to 50% to payroll. Mm. 
And we're in that range, the 45 to 50%. Does it make things tight? Absolutely. Like, you know, we're still a new baby company, you know, and there's things that we're having to iron out lessons that we have to learn. Mm. Um, But at the end of the day, I am able to take care of my techs. If that means I'm crying in my office because I'm having to figure out where to come up with, you know, something, um, that's okay. Like that's that's what you take on when mm-hmm. you when you own something, right? Like I own the failure as much as the success. Um, and so those difficult moments are on me, and I'm not going to pass that stress on to my techs. You know, that's my job is to shield them from that piece. Right on. And so Lighthouse, is that is that like is that then a clinic? Is that that is the clinic? That is the name of the clinic is uh Lighthouse Learning Center. I did not even want to call it an ABA clinic. It is mm. a learning center. Nice. Uh, we are getting ready to start our private school, which will be the Leap Academy. Ooh, cool. So, yeah, I just, you know, one of the things, too, that I've always struggled with is in the clinical world, we are ethically uh, obligated and and just insurance-wise obligated to prepare a learner for public ed. Yes. Um, Been in public education for so long, I have the moral dilemma of I can get a child as ready as ready can be, but public school will not be ready for them. Yeah. So... So instead, you're going to get them ready for your school. Yes. Wow. And how's, I mean, I don't know anything about private schools, but the the little I do know about private schools is, you know, at least in my neck of the woods, they're, 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 they're kind of elitist. Um, so what, what's gonna, what, what's gonna be kind of different about the Leap Academy? Because I imagine there's going to be something different about the Leap Academy. Oh, absolutely. Um, we are, it's a nonprofit. Mm, And so, yep, it is nonprofit. We will generate a lot of our funds from grants, um, donations. Um, we are lucky enough to have a few folks that are prepared to, um, fund some pretty significant um, aspects of the LEAP Academy. Cool. Uh, and so what we are trying to do, and again, this is still something that's a work in progress, is you know many of our commercial um, insurance clients, they have co-pays, right? Hmm. Um, and so that's just part of the requirement is that they, they have to pay the co-pay. Um, and so there, that's an... Uh, um, an expense that they are already accustomed to, they're comfortable with. And so one of the things that we're looking at is when you transition over to the LEAP Academy, what you were paying in co-pays is what you will pay as the tuition. Mm. So, and then for some of our families who are lower socioeconomic, there will be scholarships. Mm. Because... Basically, the model that we're trying to do is, you know, insurance expects you to gradually, right, fade. And so we will have a team on the Lighthouse side and a team on the Leap Academy side that will be doing that slow transition um, and making sure that we keep those very separate, right, as far as insurance versus actual schooling, even though it will look different for the student day to day. 
Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't really know if there's anything out, out there that ex- else that exists like that. Um, but that, you know, we're just going to try it. That's all we can do. And hopefully be a model to what school could be. And when, how many, how many grades will it be? So we are starting with um, the clients that we have already. Um, and then we are going to start elementary. It will be elementary and then we will grow into middle and then high school. Hmm. Awesome. And are these, is it all autistic kids or? So the academy will be open to children with all sorts of disabilities, not Hmm. just autism. So we do have some clients that have dual diagnosis of autism and Down syndrome. Hmm. Um, We do have a pretty strong community of families um, with children with Down syndrome here. Hmm. So um, we're already getting quite a few inquiries about that. So no, it will be open to all children um, with disabilities who have honestly more significant um, needs and um, challenging behaviors that are, you know, preventing them from experiencing quality of life and, and feeling successful and having friends. Um, and it'll be a nice balance because we do have some, some kids that will be coming that are very academically advanced, uh, but are on the verge of getting kicked out because socially, you know, being autistic, they cannot navigate those worlds. Um, and I'm all about inclusion once inclusion stops placing the onus on the kid with a disability to fit into the space. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm all about it. Um, but as an autistic person too, I like being around my own people. So this is a safe space for them to learn how to become friends with other neurodivergent and autistic individuals, and then how to branch out to neurotypical friendships and um, those different things. So, I mean, it's, they're big dreams. So we'll see where we, yeah, yeah. do you have some, uh, neurodivergent staff as well, or we're 90%. Wow. 90%. Yes. That's awesome. And I'm actually, thank you. I'm actually really excited too, because we have 23 staff and nine of them are guys. Which, wow. if you know the field, that's that's not common. <laughs> that is not common. Um, so that's something that we're pretty excited about is to have that kind of more balanced, right? Because guys are so good about just the rough housing and the rough and tumble and play, and they're so exciting, and the kids just really gravitate towards that, and that's that makes for fantastic sessions. It's a good balance. Nice. Well, another nice thing I think about what you're doing, you know, for sure, it's great for the students, but I think it's going to be really good for the staff as well to have a, you know, a safe place where they can be, but also a place where they can kind of grow in the field. I had, um, was it episode 50, um, a Kaylin Hartlow on. Yes. And she's an RBT and, mm-hmm. and that's what we were kind of talking about. And she was telling me, talking to me about how, And I'm hoping this changes for her and, and I see her kind of getting more exposure and, and maybe she won't even, I think, I think maybe she, she may just have a career in sort of uh, ad- advocacy and speaking anyway, but 
um, she was saying she, she'd love to be a BCBA, but she'll never be able to, you know, get into a graduate program to be a BCBA because of her dyscalculia and, and her difficulties with math. And uh, I was like, well, what's math got to do with, with a behavior analysis program? Well, nothing, but I need to have a certain grade in math and I don't understand how it works in the States, but in order to basically get to the point where I can, you know, get into university. And so there's this bizarre, you know, math barrier that, you know, that, you know, which we all talk about it as kids. When am I ever going to use this as an adult? And we become adults and we realize never, um, we're never going to use this as an adult. Um, and, and this is sort of the barrier for her. So it would be, you know, certainly, I think someone someone in 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 her shoes might have a, a lot more um, success having a full company kind of backing her and advocating for her and 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 understanding from the get go and maybe helping her, you know, kind of. I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't. I don't know. I. I. I think she, she. I know she loves the company she works for. I don't by any means mean to sort of cut into them. I think um, it sounds like it's a great company and and they've been really supportive of her. But I wonder if just being in a company where not only your employer but all your coworkers are you know kind of on the same team uh, might uh, might be helpful in trying to kind of move forward in the, in the career. Like, have you, I mean, you haven't been doing this that long having your own business, but do you have sort of, you know, neurodivergent RBTs that want to be BCBAs, but are kind of, um, you know, maybe struggling in areas that, that need support? Yeah, no, I actually do. I have two student analysts, um, that, that are, and, um, it's funny that you're bringing this up because I'm actually um, I actually work with the university here um, doing some side projects. Um, we do some research together, though, though uh, my former committee chair and committee members for my dissertation have reached out to me a couple of times for projects. And we've kind of started talking about um, uh, our site being kind of a supervision site. Mm. And so- they uh, have a fantastic program for autistic individuals who are in college. Um, they have several different um, levels of programs. So they have a kind of more of a private anonymous group for individuals who don't necessarily want to be um, known as having autism or being autistic. Yeah. Um, but they provide a lot of support to them through their academic studies. And so that's something that I'm hoping to, because I do have so many RBTs and behavior technicians that, you know, want to advance their academics, but do struggle in certain areas. Um, but that's, you know, that's another area in academia that is just this sort of gatekeeping, you know, that maybe is not intentional today, but, and this is something I talk about in my presentations, it has, cult- it's a cultural heredity, so to speak, of intentional gatekeeping that happened historically in our field, right? Mm -hmm. Like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, like there was more intentional actions to ensure that only certain people, you know, assume positions of power. Um, And even though we don't operate 
you know, consciously that way, or, you know, like you were saying, you know, people that are in the field that are white and they're great and they're not intentionally trying to gatekeep or be supremacist, but there are systems that have been inherited, right. That have just, you know, they, they have very subtly evolved into like a, Oh, we've just always done it this way. I really don't know why we do it this way. We're not changing it. And there's not that recognition of, Oh, there was a reason why that was done a long time ago. And so that's one of the things, too, is just like, you know, this is a barrier to people who would be brilliant at this work. But we have all of these systems and checks that if you don't fit this box, I don't care how good you are at it, you're not going to get in. Um, And so that's where my other nonprofit, the LEAP Institute, has really been working on, first of all, the biggest barrier, which is financial Mm -hmm. means. Supervision can be so dang expensive, right? You know, and and it for it being as expensive as it is, and the quality to be as crappy as it can be, <laughs> you know, um, is is one of the reasons why we started the institute, the Leap Institute. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do have texts that we're you know I'm slowly building that relationship with this university. Um, with the hope that there is something that we can do for people that really are qualified in every possible way other than college algebra one. Yes. You know, or I don't even know what else is pointless. (laughs) Chemistry. You know, you have to have some sort of, like I have never used chemistry in this work that I'm doing. Um, other than if I'm required to measure medication for, you know, a kid that, you know, and even then it's not chemistry, um, not mixing anything, um, or compounding medicine, nothing like that. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's my hope is that, you know, we can, it's funny that our field is about building flexibility in autistic individuals, but yet we live within systems that are so rigid and inflexible and we refuse to be flexible. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Um, that's cool. <laughs> that's cool. That's good. Uh, I'm I'm glad uh, that you're you're starting to do that work with your nonprofit. All right, let's uh, shift over to kind of what what we were talking about before we press record. I um. I've been learning very slowly and and, and very incrementally um, more about kind of, you know, indigenous perspectives and indigenous communities, uh, kind of where, where, where I live. Um, I've tried to sort of learn a little more about sort of indigenous. There is a lack of diversity when it comes to educational material depicting black children in the field of applied behavior analysis. Human Expressions gives black and brown children realistic and detailed images of kids who look like them, modeling everyday skills that may be difficult for them to communicate or express. At Human Expressions, the benefits of representation for black and brown kids in educational curricula are clear. Increased self-esteem, reducing stereotypes, and increased validation and support. To learn more, go to www.humanexpressions.org. That's human, H-U-E-M-A-N, expressions.org.
Second secret word is burn. Perspectives in our field, but they're hard to find. Um, you know, I mean, I think we, we already know um, that there are maybe, I think there's like 4.2% of behavior analysts are black. You know, actually relative to some other groups, that's kind of high. Um, uh, it's obviously ridiculously low compared to what it should be and compared to the, you know, the representation of the population. But looking at some of these other groups uh, on, on the little uh, BACB demographic curve, um, you know, like Asian Pacific Islanders are like 1%. And, you know, there's a couple that are like, you know, they don't even have a number because the pie slice is too small. Um, and I think Indigenous fits into one of those two small pie slices. Um, in Canada, so far, I've been able to find three or four. Um, and that's in the whole country. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's a few more out there that, you know, are, maybe are, you know, not as connected on the Internet or whatnot. But um it's been tough and uh, and uh, and uh, and so kind of you know hearing hearing those voices is hard when they don't exist um and you know i do have one colleague locally here jen ashley she's a metis behavior analyst she's been doing a lot of cool things and she's got a great instagram page that i'll share which is she's been doing a great job of kind of introducing some of these ways of being and um and um and some of the ceremonial sort of pieces and kind of how she embeds that into her work which is awesome there's of course in ontario louis bush um who is probably the most well-known uh um might be the most well-known behavior analyst in canada on some level uh he's just doing a lot of really cool things in ontario and um um, 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 you can sort of look look into, into that stuff, and then there are a couple other folks that are maybe were, were a bit are a bit quiet to, um, in terms of you know their indigenous identity, but they are working kind of in the field. And so, um, but I've heard more folks in the states sort of identifying as indigenous. I think partly because there's you have ten times as many people as Canada does, so there's a chance. There's, if there's two or three in Canada, maybe there's 20 or 30 in the States, hypothetically. Uh, but with that, I've, I've, I've still only found two or three, um, uh, you being one of them. Um, and so, you know, I, I definitely want to talk a little bit about kind of, you know, ABA and autism and whatnot from, you know, a, a bit of an indigenous lens, because I think the way you the way you started this conversation with your origin story with with Maria um, and how, you know, she, she, she was, is indigenous, um, hopefully is still in, in the sense of still around and with us. Um, and, um, um, uh, you know, she really, you know, this is like 2003 and, 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 and able to kind of, you know, describe ABA through that lens in, in such a succinct and, like it just makes so much more sense the way she said it. And if we all had that intro to ABA, who knows what what this field would be like right now? Um, but something else I've been learning a lot about, both in and and I think this is the case in every culture. But as a white person, you know, we see we see these cultures as as monoliths. You know, we see indigenous folks, you're all one people. Black folks, they're all one people. Latino folks, they're all one people and so on. And uh, uh, 
But for us, well, no, but that's five different people. <laughs> you know, that's a lot, you know, <laughs> for for our brains. Um, uh, you know, and and for not being exposed to a lot of cultures kind of kind of growing up and and um you know, this is kind of how we looked at things. And as I started to have more and more black guests on the podcast, you know, I I quickly realized, you know, how different folks are. Um, you know, both individually, obviously everyone's an individual, but but culturally, you know, um uh practices, ceremonies, um, you know, there are some common themes, but um there's a lot of things that, that happen in these different communities. Uh, um, um, that uh, is awesome. It just there's just so much diversity, um, and it's and 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 the stories I've been hearing has just been awesome. Uh, I'm slowly learning that there are a, many, 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 many indigenous, um, you know, uh, groups and communities and cultures, um, and it, it makes it makes me think about sort of, you know, foster uh, social services and foster care and whatnot in Canada. It's a big problem of sort of, you know, indigenous kids getting ripped from communities and put into foster care, typically with white families, um, you know, going all the way back to, you know, residential schools and the 60s scoop and all that kind of stuff. Um, um, and still happening today, basically, residential schools have just been reformed into the foster care system, uh, which we're ripping kids away from families in different ways. And, and they're still dying, too, in, 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 the, in these contexts. Uh, but one thing I noticed right away is that one of the ways they try to sort of address it is by putting indigenous kids into other indigenous communities um uh thinking that's going to solve all the problems um because they're all they're indigenous everyone's indigenous um but you know you learn so quickly that that's you know that's you know <laughs> Let's say we're let's look we're all white. Okay, then stick me in Russia, you know, <laughs> you know, stick me in Germany, and everything will be fine, won't it? No, um, um, uh, <laughs> you know. So I really like I really like having these conversations, and I've been having a lot of conversations just outside of ABA around sort of um, uh, indigenous communities in Canada, and it's been really fascinating. But there's there's so much more to learn and there's so much going on in the States. That's just cool. Like there's so many different communities and dialects and languages and, 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 and ideas and, and, uh, and intersections. Like there's so much intersectionality, I think with indigenous and indigenous communities, particularly those, I think that are, you know, uh, you know, and I'm just guessing that we're kind of, you know, closer to sort of, you know, the Latin American areas because of, because of, you know, um uh you know <laughs> inter 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 intercultural you know relationships and so on and so forth through history um so um i read i read somewhere you know that you i think you had written that you identified as uh and am I saying it right? Mesoamerican or is it Mesoamerican? Mesoamerican. Mesoamerican. And I've seen that phrase a couple of times and I have no idea what that even means. So I was wondering if we could just start with sort of some some general kind of knowledge about, you know, what Mesoamerican culture even is and where it comes from, what the history is there and and how you're connected to it. 
Yeah, so Mesoamerican is talking about the indigenous peoples really from, and it's a blurred because you have to think that this was back before you had the U.S. border right. with Mexican border, right? Like that did not exist. Um, and you had these tribes um, and cultures that just fluidly, you know, migrated back and forth depending on the seasons, depending on, you know, things that were happening. And so Mesoamerican is different from... I, I like to say like North Central and Northern kind of Canada, North Central America, Northern kind of that Canada region. Um, it was the peoples that we know as like the Aztecs, the Olmecs, mm. Mayans, um, Teotihuacans, the Mixtecs, and the Mejias, uh, or sorry, the Mejias were also known as the Aztecs. So mm. Mexico comes from the word Mejia. Um, mm. And it, I know we don't have a lot of time to kind of jump into like all the history, but basically the Aztecs um, split um, and one group followed the sun and the empire, you know, uh, of Mexico um, or Mejia was, was, you know, established. Um, And then you had the other indigenous groups that did not go that route. Um, So, you know, it's very different because, um, you know, you were mentioning the BACB demographics. Mm. There are a lot of Hispanic and Latino individuals, professionals that might be marking that as their heritage, as their ethnicity. Um, But there's really no such thing DNA wise as someone who is Mexican. You are indigenous. You probably have Spaniard from the Spaniard conquest. You probably have um, Asian because um, Filipinos were here before Columbus discovered or discovered like, wow. the name. So it's sure, America, sure. you know. And so you know, the, there's a lot, I think, more indigenous individuals that are listed under that demographic in the BACB, and they have probably just not gone on that journey. Hmm. So um, again, this was a systemic way of grouping people. Um, to say Latinos or Hispanic individuals when really is like, no, this is a continuation of natives, of of indigenous people. But it's easier today, unfortunately, politically, when you see all of this kind of border unrest and illegal immigrants, you know, I don't think it would sit as well politically for us to say like, there's indigenous individuals that are trying to come back to lands that they've Mm, always had. Yes. You know, um, and they are unable to do so because of systems that have been put in place. Um, But it's easier to um, instill apathy in the general public when you see like kids in cages in in South Texas and and in other border states. Um, And and the 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 dialogue is, you know, or the rhetoric is like, well, these are illegal immigrants. It's like, no, 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 no. These are indigenous peoples. The biggest difference in Mesoamerican um, tribes and cultures is that we were not afforded government registry. We did not get those things. We did not get reservation lands. We did not get, mm. you know, we got we got Mexico and it was like, here you go. This is yours. Don't ever cross this line <laughs> kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I'm I, again, I'm condensing this and like making this super quick there's so much yeah more, yeah yeah you know that, that comes into play with this um but 
the only there's only a couple that are actually federally recognized that cross over each border. And that's uh, one of those is, is uh, a tribe that I am a part of. And that's the Kikapu uh, mm. tribe. Um, so, I mean, they can be up as far as Kansas, Oklahoma, Texas, um, but then they also go down into northern Mexico, you know, and so they, they exist across both lines. Mm. But. It's very different. You know, our indigenous um, story, our indigenous culture is very different from, you know, what you you are probably experiencing in Canada. Right. Yeah. And even that northern kind of central um, states of Oklahoma and up. Right. It's just a different, a much different um, experience. And mm. as I got you know, as I've gotten older, just even, you know, when I'm having my kids, you know, when you're young, you don't, you're like, whatever, I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, when you have kids and you really start to like wonder like, oh my gosh, you know, and then you have children that have personalities that, you know, like I've never even seen this personality mm-hmm, where mm-hmm. Get this from, or, you know, genetic, you know, eye color things that you're like, where in our family is this, you know, you really start to have this interest of, where, where do I come from? You know, what is my story? And so this was some, this is something that for years I've been really just trying to, um, grasp because these were things that my, my grandparents wouldn't really share a lot about, you know, they didn't want to talk about these things. Um, so it's very, um, heartbreaking in that that's another way that we're different from our sister tribes is that there wasn't a lot of that narrative and that storytelling. Um, and we are very much split. Mm. You know, uh, and so there's not that open um, sharing of our history the way that there might be uh, in other tribes and other cultures. Mm. So it's hard to learn like about, you know, your people and and who you are. And um, so it's been very important for me as I am, you know, really embracing who I am um, that I learn really where I learned about where I was taught this way of being, right? Like, where did this, where did this teaching of, of how I live my life and how I, um, so, you know, as, as an indigenous person, one of the things that is very different, not necessarily with our sister tribe, but with the white community is that society is very much about rights. What's my right? This is my right. I have a right to this. Mm-hmm. As in indigenous living, um, it's it's I have a responsibility to this. Yes. You know, um, and so it's again it goes back to ownership. I don't own this. I'm responsible for this. I it yeah. is in my keeping until it you know it it is no longer there, uh, and I don't try to hold on to it. I don't try to cling to it. I don't try to put my name and stamp you know on it. it so, um, it's been, it's been years of just, you know, exploring and, and talking to, uh, you know, older relatives and, you know, trying to find people that knew my grandparents and, and, you know, really hearing, you know, like what, where did tell me about me? Like, I mm-hmm. want because we did not get, you know, we don't, I, there's nothing for me to register to, like, I can't register as a Nahua. Um, you know, I, there's no benefit that comes with that other than people looking at you and saying like, do you have a green card? Are you supposed to be here? You know, it's like, yeah, my people have been here way before, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's interesting how language and name Mm. creates such a, 
disparity of perspective on Northern Native American tribes and Indigenous Mesoamerican tribes. Mm. The attitudes towards the two are so different. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, and you're right. I imagine the history is just crazy to to kind of go and read and learn, and, and I'm going to have to dive some more into it because it makes me even think of just sort of, you know, terms like Latin America. Like I've always wondered about the term Latin America. Uh, I mean, I I know a bit about America. It's that Italian guy, Amerigo guy, um, you know, was kind of kind of connected there, um, which you know that's all colonizing conversation. Mm-hmm. But when I think of Latin, I think of you know that language that the they spoke they speak a lot in the in the Catholic Church and you know other places like that. And then it and makes me think. So then was 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 this whole area just labeled Latin America, you know, by by colonizers? Like I, I feel like none of those terms are are even original. So when you but when they've been there for so long, folks start, well, you know, there's lots of folks, like you said, that identify as Latino or Latina mm-hmm. and whatever. And, and there's folks that identify, you know, um, you know, uh, Hispanic, another term, which, again, seems to be kind of connected to Spain in a way, the term, uh, you know, just look, looking at the spelling. Lots of things that I'll look up. You don't have to explain these definitions today um, or these origins. But, um, yeah. It, in a way, you know, instead of, because it's interesting, because in Canada, we, you know, instead of, you know, shoving, sending everybody to Mexico and, and saying, don't come back, we we instead decided, um, you know, and I don't know that this is worse or better, but um, it seems worse in some ways, but we decided, no, we're going to assimilate them all um, um, and, 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 you know, make them Christian and make them white and et cetera, you know, and, and, and sort of abuse them in that way. Um, whereas your folks, you know, just got, you know, sent across the border and said, don't come back. Um, um, I'm trying to articulate that, that, you know, the, the idea the folks up in my neck of the woods, most of them know they're indigenous, you know, like there's not too many folks out there that are like suddenly discovering they're indigenous. You know, there's a few folks that are doing, you know, the, you know, the, the, the DNA testing thing and finding out that they're 2% indigenous and, and deciding to suddenly identify. Um, and we do have a, you know, and this is a tangent, of course, but we do have a, a problem in Canada now of, the 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 pretendian prop uh, problem where folks are you know deciding they're indigenous when they're not um and claiming to be and, and claiming the benefits of being indigenous which again as you say in your neck of the woods there are no benefits in that in that way like no financial benefits or whatever um so it's just it's so interesting to me that there's there are probably you know you know hundreds of thousands of millions of indigenous people you know, south of the border of the U.S. that don't even consider themselves indigenous um, because they don't know because you know their everything was lost and and I mean I, I it's 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 too mind boggling now because to, to even think about it even think about sort of the the countries in Central and South America you know and were they even countries and you know it's, right it's, you know it's hard to wrap the head around it now as I say it out loud 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, and I think it's, you know, important to, um, in our, in our stories, you know, like making sure that it's not comparative in any way, you know, like the struggles for the indigenous natives in, in Canada, um, Mm -hmm. it's its own, right? Like it stands on its own. Absolutely. You know, um, I think the struggles for, for us here, you know, stand on their own as well. Like, you know, maybe getting sent back across the border, but then there's so many that are, you know, the, um, the migrant workers that are putting food in grocery stores, right. They're getting Mm -hmm. paid, you know, maybe $2 a day, um, you know, getting paid under the table. They don't get benefits, you know, they don't get any Mm -hmm. of those. So business here capitalizes on that. Um, and I don't want to say that it's, um, and I'm not in any way going to say that it's like modern day slavery because I'm not going to, um, disrespect, you know, my black, uh, sisters and brothers Mm -hmm. and, and that, but in a way it is almost kind of like an indentured, you know, servitude type of thing where if you're here illegally, you, you risk losing everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and you benefit from very little, you know. Um, so it is a it's a very hard, it's very hard to see people um that I know are indigenous. And it's like, man, if if we knew what our history was, yeah, what could we do? Right. And I'm sure that that's not something that the majority really is thrilled at the idea of, you know. What does that look like? Is, does that mean reparations now? Does that, mm. mean, you know, because that's a lot. That's a lot. Um, and so I think, unfortunately, the way that you keep people from discovering who they are, discovering their power, is you keep them in positions of inequity and struggle yeah. to where we're stuck between surviving and thriving, you know? When you're surviving, you don't have time to research this stuff. You don't have time to dive down and see, you know, who you are, where you come from. You're busy surviving. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's a very it's been a very interesting journey. Yeah. Well, kind of bringing it back to sort of our world. Um I had uh, had a uh, Grant Bruno on the podcast. The third secret word is Skinner. Referenced him a few times, uh, episode thirty-seven. Check him out, folks. By the way, he's just doing some really cool things now. He's just done like a world research tour. Um, he was at the Infar conference over in Scandinavia somewhere, and you know talking about his son and and just is a guy that guy that he's an indigenous fella from alberta uh who's got a couple autistic sons and he's doing his doctoral work around um um autism in indigenous communities um uh not nothing to do with aba do with autism and and you know and really talks about how uh you know, indigenous communities are indigenous ceremony is 
the most inclusive context you can be in. Um, uh, you know, there's there's no invitation required. You just hear that some sort of ceremony event, powwow, whatever, whatever is happening, you know, um, um, sweat lodge, um, and, and so on. Uh, and you're, you're, everyone's invited to you, no matter who you are, no matter, you know, what behaviors you engage in or, or whatnot, you're all welcome. They have a word for autism, which is not, you know, which is, I think it's, and and I can't pronounce it, but um, it's basically translates to he who thinks differently or people who think differently. And uh, I heard a similar story from when I was talking to someone about uh, uh, the Maori uh, people in in New Zealand, and they have a similar term. I'm wondering sort of about how ABA or no, not ABA, how kind of being indigenous for you aligns with kind of your your autistic identity and autistic culture. Oh gosh, um, so it's kind of a fascinating experience, I guess, because there are many things that. Um, align with my indigenous culture and heritage, but there's also places where it clashes, mm. um, where my autism clashes very much. So um, with the, like the way that my people um, interact in the community, if that makes sense or mm-hmm. interact. Um, so it's, it's, it's still things that I'm piecing apart. You know, a lot of it is like going back retroactively to my childhood, to my young adulthood, to now, to looking at like, okay, where, where did, um, kind of obstacles and barriers happen for me that were really a, a kind of a collision of my autism with being in an indigenous, you know, community, being with, uh, being indigenous and, you know, living with, um, family and, and, and around people that the culture did not, it did not come easy for me because of my autism. Um, so, you know, there are pieces of it that absolutely, you know, as an autistic person, I wasn't very social, um, and in my childhood. Uh, and it's funny, I was talking to both my psychiatrist and a friend the other day about that. Like, I remember most of my childhood being about almost like not present or not engaged in the world around me. I was just watching. Mm. Uh, I didn't talk a lot. I just watched. Um, and I tuned out the sounds, right? Like it was very overwhelming to hear people talking, to hear sounds. So it was almost like watching a silent movie for a lot of my childhood and adult or young adulthood, adolescence, because I did not want to kind of step out in this body and like, interact in this world because one, I didn't understand it. One, I didn't understand it. And two, when I observed people in this way, without the words, without the sounds, I learned very quickly um, their intentions by their other mannerisms, their eyes, their facial expressions, their body language. Those were the things that I was very focused on and very interested in learning about people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I started, it was, it was really almost middle of my undergrad, um, experience where I started 
becoming more interactive with the world around me, right? Like actually engaging with it and not just like sitting back and watching. Mm. Uh, it was, it was during that kind of time, maybe like late high school um, and into college where I kind of started letting the words, people talking come into play, like listening to that and realizing like, you're saying this, but your body language is not matching up. And so I was not very trusting and I'm still not very trusting um, because people can speak really nice things and, and use words very powerfully. Yep. Um, but I, I have to resort back to that skill that I, you know, honed for my whole entire childhood and young adulthood of like, let me see the way your body, the way you're interacting in this environment, your facial expression, like all of these different things besides the words coming out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really influenced um, just kind of my world uh, and the way that I existed. So I'm sorry, I totally went on a tangent and I (laughs) want to make sure I get back to your question. Um, Just. It definitely impacts like it's not always sunshine and and rainbows being Mm. uh, with the two cultures, autistic culture and indigenous culture coexisting. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, And I don't know a lot of other autistic Mesoamerican indigenous peoples, I sure the heck don't know any that are in the field. Mm. Um, And that's hard. That's a very, um, I may not be very social, but it's still a very lonely road. Mm -hmm. I really don't have anyone to lean on that has those intersections of being indigenous, being autistic and being a professional in this field. Um, So I, it's, it's hard to, Talk to, to, to it's hard to be able to know like is what I'm feeling. Did you feel this too? Did you experience? Yeah, yeah, I bet. So, mm. yeah, I don't know if it's gonna be. And yeah, and have you had have you had any connection in your work just with uh, you know students you know that are autistic and indigenous um um and kind of supporting them in a different way or or have you even made any contact with folks in that realm i have not come across very many i mean i think when i went to present in seattle i had a few individuals come up to me after the presentation who are native but again you got to think they're up higher north right they're closer to canada so their culture their community is very unique yeah. Um, and so we, while we share being indigenous geographically, our lived experiences and our histories are so unique mm-hmm. apart from being indigenous and in the field, there's, there's still so much that we don't share, mm-hmm. uh, as far as lived experience. So, uh, you know, anyone here where I'm at or in this kind of geographic region that is autistic and indigenous and, and whether they're Nahua, Kikapu, uh, Otomi, or uh, Raramuri, I have not encountered anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I don't. I I should say I I don't know if I have encountered someone, and maybe they didn't know. Yeah. Maybe that's the way I should put it, because I do run into a lot of 
identifying as Hispanic or Latino, Latina, Latinx um, individuals. But again, that's kind of like a, um, I, I want to say like a Band-Aid of, of mm-hmm. a name that really. Yeah, yeah. Well, it just, it makes me think about, again, this is, these are experiences I don't ever have, but of just what I've sort of, again, seen up here. Up here, you know, Indigenous folks are, you know, and not all of them, I mean, because there's definitely been, you know, some intermixing with, you know, European cultures in, in you know, in the last few hundred years to, you know, result in many sort of, you know, white presenting Indigenous folks. Uh, but there's lots of folks that aren't white presenting, and it's pretty clear they're indigenous. You know, um, you can, pre- especially if you're living in in an area that's close to a, a, a First Nation, then you know there's a lot of folks in that community, and and you can you know, pretty pretty clearly make that connection. It's so interesting that you know down your way, you know folks don't make that connection with each other, you know, because down your way, you know, again, this is different from my skewed bias Canadian perspective. I think a ton of people sort of, you know, in in the Southern US all the way down to South America kind of look indigenous, um, um, you know, and, and I'd sort of assume like yourself included, you know, and I'd sort of assume probably indigenous um and yet these people themselves wouldn't look at each other and necessarily think each other are indigenous and that's just sort of and that's why this conversation is maybe too big for this episode because there's just so much history and oppression that goes you know so far beyond you know you know i mean beyond the american oppression you know that that you know like most of our most of the oppression of our indigenous folks were you know from the you know the british colonizers coming over and 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 kind of doing their thing but you know it wasn't all british from you know the southern us all the way to chile there was lots of different lots of different folks doing the colonizing it was a you know there was a lot of different european and non-european countries coming over and doing that sort of thing and so Oh yeah. 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 I mean, it was Cortez, you know, primarily he was the the big one that came, right. you know, Latin America, you know, you kind of were talking about that earlier. We have to think about Spain, right? Yeah. Catholicism. Yeah. Was was the primary religion and so Latin was what was spoken, right? Yeah. At the mass. Um so Latin America, like it was yeah. the Catholic Church was putting that stamp on like, oh, this is ours. This is our land. We own it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's kind of heartbreaking because we're very displaced. Um, you know, we, we're orphans essentially that we, we have no idea who we are, where we come from. And we are, we've primarily for the most part, we've just accepted the name that's been given to us Yeah, yeah. You know, because everybody wants to belong somewhere. Right. Yeah. And so that's understandable that, you know, you have people that don't want to accept that you mm-hmm. are indigenous, you're not really Latin or Hispanic um, because they have created an identity and a community within within that. And, yeah. you know, there's the fear that, OK, if I don't claim this anymore, does that mean I've lost these things that come with it? 
Um, and so that's understandable. Um, but at the same yeah. time, like oppression still exists even within, you know, the, those Southern American um, regions, you know, when the Aztecs separated and had the Mejia and, you know, the rest of everyone else, um, light skin was what was in. <laughs> mm. So, and, and I lived on the border, um, for a while, you know, um, after I graduated college, I was there for a good while. And I saw that the, um, they, they were called nationals, the, the Mexican mm. nationals, when they would come over to go shopping, these were very wealthy people, you know, with blonde hair or red hair, blue or green eyes, mm. very fair skinned. Um, you would have thought that they were white or European until they yeah. spoke fluent Spanish. Wow. And these were the elite. These are the elite. Um, and there's still very much colorism there that people like me that are tan, that are darker, that have the more indigenous look. We are not looked. We are looked down upon. We are yes. not. So that, you know, that's not just a um, European white, um, you know, United States thing. It happens within, you know, our own community. We we make mm. sure the same blood and the same lineage, but, you know, gen, you know how genetics works. You yeah. have one kid that's fairer skinned and one that's darker skinned and the fairer skinned is, is still preferred Yeah, uh, because that is just... Um, what we call the protection of complexion. And that's super common in, in, in black communities too. I mean, they, they're, they're, they're often talking about sort of, you know, uh, many, many of the folks I talked to want growing up, wanting to be whiter, wanting to, you know, or their parents saying you're lucky, you know, you've got a lighter skin. So you've got some, you've got some more chances here. Um, um, uh, you know, I, I mean, the, you know, uh, people going so far as to like, you know, bleach and skin and, you know, medication and different things to sort of change it. So, yeah. And it's funny because um, when I really started jumping into advocacy, sometimes my husband, would, my husband would be like, is it really that bad? You know, hmm. he's like, oh, come, you know, he's he, and and he's come a long way. But um, I remember very specifically he, him experiencing him, experiencing something and going, oh, my gosh, you're right. Um, and what had happened was and, and so he is half his mother is white and his mm. dad um, was Latino, Hispanic, most likely indigenous. Yeah. But he is very fair skinned. He has green eyes, curly kind of um, uh, reddish brown hair. Mm. Um, and so he looks. Kind of like you're like, oh, I don't really know what you are, but you don't look like this. You don't look right. like me. Um, and I'm pointing at myself because I know yeah. this is a, an audio. Um, but he applied for a position and he got denied. And he's like, I, I don't understand. Like, I'm more than qualified. I have a master's. I have a ba you know, bachelor's and master's. I have, you know, this many years experience. And I said, it was probably your name. And he said, what? I said, yeah, Carlos Cerda. Mm. What does that bring up in your mind when you hear that name? And he's like, whatever. That was not, he goes, that's not it. I said, walk in to the place that you applied to, talk to them first, 
Ask them if they're hiring, get to know them, and then tell them who you are and that you applied. And he went in and did that. And sure enough, oh, wow, you don't look at all how I imagined. Wow. Yeah. And, and I, and, you know, and I know, you know, he's kind of one of those hopeful people that's like, that's not really how it's like, is it? Mm-hmm. It's not really. Mm-hmm. But he has had the protection of complexion his whole life. Yes. If he walks into a room before he says his name, he's automatically in. So um, it's been a learning experience for him. And also our, uh, my two older children, uh, my first husband was white. Mm. Um, They are pale. They are paler. Mm. Uh, My daughter gets asked all the time if she's Asian, Mm. uh, which is funny. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Um, Genetically, you know, I have 2% Asian. I actually have 12% African. And Mm. then the rest is, you know, 86% American indigenous. Um, But they have had a much easier time in school, mm. social situations. Um, and then my husband and I had our third little one, and he looks just like me. And we have seen a significant difference in the way that he is treated. Wow. Versus the way my older two have been treated. And so for him, it has been an eye-opening experience that my son, based on his long hair, that is not socially the norm or acceptable, and his dark features has a spotlight on him and a target on him. And he can be mm. misbehaving just like any other kid in the classroom, but he will always be the one that is called out. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. And how old is he? He just turned eight. Mm. So, and we had ceremony and he finally cut his hair. Mm. Um, His dad was kind of brokenhearted about it, um, but we really wanted to make sure, you know, and, and and it's hard for me too, because I understand part of his reasoning was because he was being pinpointed and targeted so much. So, you know, all the time. And he didn't even mind the comments of like, well, you look like a girl. Mm. Didn't mind that. It was that anytime he made a mistake or just acted like a seven, eight-year-old boy, it was that. Yeah, I've got a guest coming on. I I, I can't remember which one it is, uh, but part of their research is on, uh, on teaching kids. How to teach, teach how to teach kids to deal with microaggressions at school, um, and, and sort of things you can do as parents to sort of give them a safe place to vent about them or something to that effect. But um, I was like, that's just it's ridiculous that we need this research. But um, yeah, but yeah. And, and that's fantastic research. I think the hardest variable that won't be able to be controlled is the adult's response in those school situations when when your child does go to the adult and asks for help yeah um i mean for me that triggers childhood memories i i remember my parents putting me in a private school um because i wasn't engaging or flourishing or and now looking back they were like oh my god it's because you were autistic um but they put me private school and i remember some boys being very cruel and saying like ew 
You're just a dirty Mexican because your elbows, look at how dark your elbows are, you know? And I'm like in third or fourth grade. And I remember so vividly going to the teacher and saying, look, like, Hey, they're being really mean to me and they're teasing me. And, you know, can you help me? And the teacher was like, well, maybe if you would scrub your elbows harder in the bath, they would not be that. I remember that teacher's name. I remember everything about that teacher, which I, who I will not name, Mm. but that stuck with me. And so I love that there's research coming out in that, but how do we control the variable of racist adults? Who will reinforce the child that's exhibiting the microaggressions? Yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. And I think, and again, I don't know, I've I've got to talk to this person, read the papers, because I haven't done any of that yet. I've just read the titles. Uh, But uh, but I I think it's some. And I don't want to be not playing your stuff. I don't no, 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 no. But I, I feel like this is sort of an alternative to talking to the adults in the school. Yeah. So that instead of talking to the adults in the school, they do this uh, because I think because of that sort of problem. But yeah, yeah. I was asking earlier about, we're going to wrap up shortly here, but I was asking earlier about, you know, had, have you had any, you know, Indigenous kids and whatnot and, and because I, I'm curious about sort of you know ABA in indigenous cultures and 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 how and how that works I I not how it works but how it's been received and and acceptability I had I uh I I've I've changed the description of the podcast on the website and and I've removed some some of the letters after my name because I found it's actually preventing me from getting guests um uh, you know I'm not surprised not surprised that there'd be like certainly some neurodiverse guests that would want to come on for some obvious reasons but I'm also not getting uh I've also been trying to reach out to sort of indigenous folks from a variety of different backgrounds um and I've discovered that ABA does not sit well with the a lot of the indigenous communities um and I reached out to one parent um who uh who uh was I think fairly well known in in the community for speaking and 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 different sorts of things on just education in general and indigenous things related to her kids and I reached out to her and said you know love to have you on the podcast and and it was she it was she wrote back but you I could see the laughter on her face as she was typing this email to me about how ridiculous I was to to ask her to come talk to me on her podcast are you kidding me you you're an ABA and you want me to be you want me to talk to you you are ridiculous is what this email said and I was like whoa yeah awesome um uh I appreciate that uh, you know, I tried to be respectful writing back and uh, and certainly no, I, I completely get, you know, what why I shouldn't want to be on, but um um I but I've heard more and more, you know, that you know, ABA with indigenous kids just doesn't mesh well. Um uh because not not so much that that, you know, would would the would would behavior analysis could it be? Could you use behavior? You know, apply behavioral principles to change the behavior of Indigenous children? Of course you can. I mean, you can change the behavior of anybody with ABA. But um, the the lack of cultural responsiveness and and cultural considerations um, um, that that I think we've had historically, and we're 
we're trying a bit now. Um, some are, some are, uh, you know, has rained, you know, has, you know, left a bad taste in, ma- in, in many, many indigenous communities. And so I was curious if it was similar kind of in, in the States, um, but I don't know if yeah. you've heard from sort of other folks maybe. So I'm really curious. I have a friend, her name is Janet and she, hmm. and, uh, is it Berenice? They're here in Texas, but they actually just started doing a lot of work um, in Mexico. Um, but I don't know them well enough to know their journey into their personal discovery of their indigeneity, indigeneity. <laughs> um, and Janet's so from I, Puerto Rico? No, Janet is from oh. uh, San Antonio. Okay. Oh, Janet. Oh, Janet. Yeah, no, I had uh, Janet and Berenice on the podcast. Yeah. Uh, yes. with with Varasova and uh, Mariana. Right. Yeah. So I don't know what approach they're pulling in, right? Like because you mm. do have the very like what I talked about the nationals, right? That have the yeah. very um they're very proud, right, of that Spaniard piece and there's a lot of culture built in around mm. that. And so I don't know if that is what's going to lead their work. Mm. Or if there's any piece that's looking at the responsiveness to the indigenous cultures that are there that don't right. allow that, right? Like that's a whole other complex area. So I'm really fascinated and hoping to catch up with them soon. Mm. To talk about that. Um, yeah. Going back to the individual, I'm pretty sure I know who it was that you reached out, but mm. I think it's important too that we kind of circle back to what you said earlier is that we are not a monolith. Um mm. So when you talk about indigenous communities that have not received ABA well, I think it's important to look at the nuance of that um, because our experiences are very different. Um, So if you're looking at um, communities in Canada and even the northern U.S., there are things that and resources that they actually have that we do not. Right. So I mentioned that my peoples are displaced. We don't yep. have a community of a reservation. We don't have tribal sovereignty, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Well, I don't have a an immediate community that I can lean on and right. be able to say, I don't want this ABA. I don't mm. want this compliance-based coercive method because I have at least this kind of safety net in my reserv- on my reservation in this area where we have sovereignty and the government still has some limitation, right? Like yes. Active factors. Yes. So that's very different from here. Right. Where um, BIPOC individuals, not just indigenous, but black families um, are, we don't have that protection of that type of community, right? We don't have kind of these um, inherited rights that the federal yes. government recognize that allows us to say, I do not, I do not agree to this. Um, and so while hmm. in Canada you do have indigenous um, children being placed in foster care, right? And in, in that sort of assimilation, um, I trademarked a term called therapeutic colonization hmm. in that down here, that is the way in which assimilation is happening. There is the threat of your children being taken by CPS and put in foster care or into the system, or you partake in this therapy that's going to go ahead and do the assimilating for us, yeah. us as in the government, 
right? So it's like, which one do I take? Do I lose my child entirely to into the system? Mm. Do I put them in this therapy that I'm going to have to fight tooth and nail to ensure that their culture remains and that um, under the guise of standardized behaviors and normative behaviors, their culture is not being inadvertently and in, or in, in, intentionally erased. Mm. Right. Um, so it's a very different experience, I think, for indigenous people here where I am versus uh, up north. And so I, no, absolutely, makes sense. I absolutely understand her perspective. And I, it, you know, there is, uh, again, kind of some protective factors in place that Canada has provided, you know, and even like the United States that we do not have. We don't have those. Um, right. You know, they're, and they're not strong barriers of protection, but they're, they at least but exist. But they exist, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's important that, you know, when we talk about indigenous people in Mesoamerican culture, one ABA is no different from any other system that we encounter. The educational system, the medical system, right. the judicial system, the law enforcement, you know, system, like it, it's all the same. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if it was taken away, we're going to experience it in other places. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and with that, uh, <laughs> no, it's, I mean, it, 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 there, there's just so much to learn. Um, I wonder if you, I mean, I didn't ask you this in advance and maybe this is something you could just sort of share with me later and I could put in the show notes. Um, if you, what might be some good resources to go learn more about kind of the the Mesoamerican culture and just the history and you know the good and the bad, um, um, because I I wouldn't even know where to start beyond Wikipedia. Yeah. Um. So I actually have a list of books. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that asked that that great question um awesome so the first one is um the people's uh, a people's history of the united states mm. for sure um open veins i think is what it's called of uh, latin america another good one to read um a lot of people probably read 1491 you might have mm. been required reading before all this book banning started mm. Mm. And then there is a, uh, let me see if I can pull it. I actually used it in a presentation. Um, and it is the, it's a beautiful blend of um, what we call two-eyed seeing. You probably yes. have that, right? Yep. To the Western and the indigenous culture. It's a beautiful blend of that. And it's, it's basically like um, indigenous storytelling and like research methods, so to speak. So how you pull together mm. um, looking at research through an indigenous lens. Oh. Yes. I think I've seen this book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um. Let me find it. I cannot believe I'm, I've like presented on this thing so much applying indigenous research methods. That's what it's called. Mm, okay. Cool. Um, yeah, it's written um, by uh, Sweeney Windchief, 
and Timothy okay. San Pedro is the editor. Nice. nice. Yeah, this this book right here is absolute. I wish I wish our program, our ABA programs, our graduate programs, um, encompass this because narrative medicine is real has really been gaining um, recognition in other disciplines, right? In mm-hmm. the medical field, in nursing. Um, but of course, you know we're new, so we're behind. We're yeah. people forget we're still a, we're still a baby field. We have a mm-hmm. lot to learn. Um, and I, I'm hoping that we get back to listening more than telling. Um, yeah. We- I struggle with the baby field excuse. I think we've been using this one for a while that we're a young field and we've got a lot. We'll, we'll figure it out eventually as we grow. I mean, yeah, we did, no. we, you know, I mean, we did, we, we did start, you know, 60, 70 years ago. That's still long enough for us to. You know, yeah. You know. Well, and, anyway, and I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't mean no, no, no. You're good, and I want to clarify that. I don't mean baby as in an excuse. I mean baby, yeah. and we have not developed any further than that. Ah, uh, okay, that's fair. Yeah. Right. So we're yeah. still developmentally behaving like two, three, and four year olds. I got you. Even though yeah. we've been here, you know, since yeah, Skinner and that I agree with. Yeah. Do you see what yeah. I'm saying? I yeah. Do, yeah. We haven't yeah. emotionally matured. We haven't no. professionally matured. We, um, well, the fact that it it took, it took till the 2020s to start writing papers with the word compassion in it. Yeah. Well, and hey, if if the APA, the American Psychological Association, only just issued an apology for how racist, you know, the DSM and other practices are. I mean, you know, like what was that, 2019, 2020, mm. to issued a formal apology? We got a long way to go. Yeah. We have a long way to go. Yeah, we do. There's a great, uh, I'll put in the show notes when I find the name, but there's a great uh, Instagram page, psychiatrist, who talks about decolonizing psychiatry. She's a young psychiatrist, young black psychiatrist, and she's just, she's just awesome. Uh, just talking about, but basically talking about sort of all all the history of, all the the racist history of psychiatry up until now, and, and well, I wonder if it's related to it. If it's, um, oh, I think I know who you're talking about because I think she's we, super popular. She's got like hundred hundred thousand plus followers, and and uh, Kaylee Hobson could be. Could she's an adult and pediatric psychiatrist. Yes, she's an adult and pediatric psychiatrist, and yeah. I think for sure. And Dr. Uh, Kaylee MD is her Instagram handle. Right, right, yeah. She's, yeah, she, she's uh she's awesome. Um yeah, really cool. Well, Marty, um, this was cool. Um I feel like this could go another couple couple hours. Um, quite easily because there's just so many things to dive into and maybe we can come back and do a part two sometime. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, another book I'm going to recommend just before we hop off. Yeah. Is, yeah. It's called where they burn books. They ah. also burn people. Wow. That's a title. Yeah. Especially now in this uh, political climate. Yeah. So will you, will you send me your book list? 
Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And I can put the links to them in the show notes for folks. Absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. <sighs> my mind, my mind is blown again today with just <laughs> I, I came in with a lot of assumptions. Um, and I was not expecting to learn what I've learned so far about Mesoamerican culture. And you know, I I was I expected you to have I expect that, you know, and this is the bias. I expected experiences that were similar to ones I've heard up in my neck of the woods. And it's just so completely different um, and explains why I haven't seen the term a whole lot either. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think as scientists for us, it's important, especially when we're so, um, we're so jaded by that single case design, right? Those five kids yep. in Indiana or in Iowa, right? Yep. They're going to, they're going to represent everybody yeah. and the practices that then become evidence-based. That's, yeah. that's the thing that I've, I'm really hoping that we can start to have conversations about like, oh yeah, that's not enough. Yeah. That's. No, hundred percent. I mean, I mean, I, I was, I told you sort of before we aired that I was having this exact conversation with somebody about you know, the evidence base for autism. And yes, there is a lot of research on ABA and autism. Um, and most of it is, a lot of it is single subject. There's some that isn't, but a lot of it is. And for sure, as far as sort of, you know, those kind of narrow pr parameters without thinking of, you know, different types of people. Um, yeah, it does we 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 can find functional relations yes over and over again um we can make those causal not correlated connections and so in that lens we have an evidence base but i think there i think and this is why you know even the term evidence based practice is so different from field to field to field to field no there's no unifying definition of what an evidence based practice is um we've decided that for us this is good enough. Um, and for us, this is evidence and this, and this is proven. And if, and if you say it's not, then you're, you're, you know, you're going against the grain, but it's, it doesn't take into account any sort of cultural consideration whatsoever. Um, and, you know, you know, if, even if you had, you know, five kids in a study and one was black and one was indigenous and one was Asian and one was, you know, whatever, you're not going to say each kid represents, you know, their entire, oh, yeah. their entire, you know, you know, mm -hmm. uh, diverse group or whatever. And so, yeah, we, we really do need, you know, some, some, some bigger numbers mm -hmm. um, and some, and so, and some, some, you know, better, better subject selection and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we've got to go back historically, you know, if you have someone as big as Skinner, Right. Writing all the stuff that he did. And there's zero evidence that he was influenced by the historical events happening around those times, which was the civil rights movements. Mm. He's absolutely uninfluenced by that or none of that comes into play as far as human behavior. Yeah. I have a lot of questions. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Art, you know, and, and and you know, and I, I I've repeated this quote many times uh, since I had 
Tiffany Hammond on and she talked to, you know, and uh, awesome new book, by the way. She's just rocking it. Like 10,000 oh copies sold now. New York Times bestseller. Go Tiffany. But uh, she talked about, um, you know, she, she, she wrote this one essay that she posted on Instagram that just, uh, you know, that drew me in about, you know, that the ABA is just a leaf in the tree. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's the roots of that tree that we should be addressing, um, you know, and the roots are essentially every, every ism you can think of, but, um, uh, and so, and, and, and no one, no one wants to sort of talk about that and, and, and talk about the fact that, you know, you know, yeah, Skinner had some great ideas for sure, you know, and, and, uh, and, uh, and did some, did some, did some good work, but. But he wasn't paying attention to what was going on in the world, um, or at least didn't come out that way. And and because he didn't pay attention, the people that came after him didn't think it was important to pay attention either. Um, and we're starting to pay attention, little little bits of us here and there. But yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, yeah, it's, I mean it's 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 messed up. It is. And I think, you know, the hardest thing about, you know, what Tiffany was saying, as far as like addressing the root, what that really means is like decolonizing. Yeah. And to do that, who then are the ones in control right now and the ones that are in those positions of power, who are they going to have to hand that platform over to? Mm -hmm. Right. Because they, do not know the ways of decolonizing. They do not mm -hmm. know the way of living. Um, and ABA right now teaches people how to be individuals. Um, and it teaches a very individualistic type of culture. Yeah. Indigenous ways of being and decolonizing is a collectivist way of being. Yes. Which is funny because isn't behavior analysis about studying community and how we interact with each other as community, not just as an individual. It's not an individual in isolation. So why are yep. we teaching to be that way? Right on. All right. Well. Thank I'm you. Just, thank <laughs> you. I'm, I'm just wrapping up because I know I, I I know we only blocked off a couple hours. I I I'll, I keep going all day. But uh uh but but we should probably stop. Okay. Good. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been awesome. We'll talk soon. <laughs>